0: Welcome to More Than Amused Podcast, a podcast all about women and the arts, hosted by Stani and Sadie.
1: Join us as we explore what it's like being a female artist, examine modern day problems, and educate ourselves and you on important and forgotten female artists of the past.
0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back. This is another week with More
1: Than Amused Podcast, and my name is Sadie. And I'm Stani, and welcome. This is an exciting episode. I'm really very very excited about this one actually
0: (laughs) I know all I know about this person is their name yes so I'm very excited because I've never heard of them or if I have I haven't realized
1: oh you've definitely heard her voice that's for sure I don't know if there it would be possible for anybody maybe now if they were born now and maybe some of the younger Gen Z but like if you grew up in the 90s and you had parents that played music, you know, that was on the radio or stuff, you definitely heard it. Like, I feel like it would be impossible to escape. I was on TikTok, (laughs) of course, and I ran across this um, lady who was doing a series about different people from history that, like, Mm -hmm. you should know about. Do you know... Have you ever watched Criminal Minds? Yeah. So the guy who played... What was his name? He was on the first few seasons, and he left. He was like the older guy who would say a lot of like philosophy quotes and stuff. I'm truthfully like not as I know what Criminal Minds
0: is. I
1: haven't really watched
0: it a lot, so you're
1: good. It's okay. So he's on TikTok, and he actually reposts a lot of people's TikToks that he thinks deserve more attention. Oh, cool. So I found it because he reposted it, but the original creator of it is Dara Starr Tucker. And it's D-A-R-A-S-T-A-R-R-T-U-C-K-E-R. And her bio says she's a singer and social commentator. And she just has a bunch of stuff on there. I haven't looked through all of hers. I did run across another one of her, like her videos, and it's super incredible. I think she calls the series like the music breakdown. Anyway, I ran across her video talking about Martha Wash and like the different legal battles that happened because of it, which we'll get into. There's, there's a bunch, which is just so cool. And so I, I saved the video and I'll post it. I feel like I'm tripping all over my words. Anyway, <laughs> I'll save the video and I'll post it to the Instagram. But this story is just absolutely insane and like blew my mind just the different things. It's like on the same level of like legal battles that you'd assume as the one artist we covered whose husband stole all of her paintings. Stole all of her paintings. What was her name again? Margaret Keene. Yes. I feel like it's the same level of like legal lawsuits as Margaret Keane, where you're just like, what? Wow. <laughs> so I'm excited. Me too. And then as I did my research, I realized that I know nothing about the origin of disco music. I don't think...
0: I know a lot either and I have a whole music degree so that's per- probably yeah. pretty embarrassing.
1: And so I was like that is an entire like I've heard a lot of things about like how rock and roll started, how R&B began, country, you know like all those things like but I don't mm. think I've ever heard anyone talk about the history of disco. And then I was like, "Oh, this will be like a brief little thing that I look up and talk about." And then it turned into this whole story that is actually insane and it literally ended in a riot. So <laughs> I'm going to try to like be a little bit brief on this like state of arts about the origin of disco, but like just upfront this is probably going to be a longer episode just because there's so much to both like Martha Wash's story and the origins of disco that I want to yeah. talk about because it's literally so cool. So, hopefully it will be good. <laughs> but first, I googled like how did disco begin? And interestingly enough, disco music started In World War II because the Nazis outlawed live music. They said you can't have live music in nightclubs or in performance halls or anywhere and so even though like Paris, Belgium, everywhere else like that they were known for like their live jazz Mm -hmm. music and everything that they were playing at the time. They weren't allowed to play that anymore, and so they had to rely on physical records. And a woman is actually credited with being the first DJ and starting the first discotheque. Her name is Regine Zeilberg, and she's a Belgian-born French singer and nightclub in Pressaro. And she actually dubbed herself the Queen of the Night, <laughs> which is cool. Okay. But she started her first discotheque in Paris and was the first club DJ in 1953. And her club was called the Whiskey-A-Go-Go. I love which that. Which so funny. And of course, disco comes from the word discotheque, which literally means a library of phonograph records. So it was literally just like a shelf of records that...
0: I had no idea that that's like where that name came from.
1: And so that's where these clubs started forming. And instead of booking a band, they just had to rely on records. And then that became like a huge popular thing. And then it transitioned over into the United States in the early 60s, where they shortened to the term to disco. And then it just evolved. Of course, once it reached the United States, it blended with a million things that we had going on over here. There were a bunch of different subcultures of music that were up and coming and kind of blended into the sound of disco. One of them was like the Philly soul sound. There's a song by Jerry Butler called Only the Strong Survive. That's like the epitome of that, Mm. apparently. And then also a bunch of stuff that was being created by African-American and Latino musicians and audiences in the 60s and early 70s. And then they would throw these private dance parties in the underground gay community of New York, and then this really took off because, of course, racism was still everywhere, and a lot of people weren't able to attend like normal nightclubs, not normal, but the mainstream nightclubs, because... Of the color of their skin or their sexual orientation or a Mm. bunch of other stuff. They called it like mainstream American wasp, like white Anglo-Saxon protestant culture. So just like the very mainstream typical. And so people of color and LGBTQ plus folks that weren't able to go to those other clubs, started going to these underground Mm. disco clubs. And it really took off. Stars of R&B started to really incorporate disco elements into their music, like Stevie Wonder Mm. and the OJs. By the mid-70s, Gloria Gaynor and Donna Summer were topping the charts with disco hits. They had a Billboard magazine article that started documenting the popularity of disco music and the first number one disco song on the chart was You Should Be Dancing by the Bee Gees. In 1971, an iconic television show called Soul Train aired on national TV for the first time. Before that, it had been like a local television show in Chicago, but then it became like a huge instant hit because it featured a lot of Black performances and it really complimented what disco was all about Mm. with like the sleek style big afros talented amateur dancers incredible performers and so they pitched the show as like the american bandstand of color and it just really took off and pushed disco even further then a bunch of devout rock and roll radio stations started converting themselves over to disco music only which is crazy to think about but they all took over and were only playing disco music and then even in 1977 there was a film created called saturday night fever that was about new york city's disco culture And it actually ended up winning Best Movie of 1977 and Best Motion Picture at the Golden Globes. However, apparently not all of that was very accurate, because the article it was based on wasn't exactly accurate. But still, like, people were really tapping into the popularity of disco. The funny part is, is that a bunch of journalists in the 70s couldn't explain why disco music was so popular and they were like why is this popular it was created by the subculture of white america yeah not by the mainstream culture so why is it so popular and a lot of people have explained now that it's kind of funny that they had a problem with disco when they didn't have a problem with like rock and roll which was you know also created by of course you know like the black songstress is what they say sister rosetta tharp like she's the mother of rock and roll but the thing that was cool and unique about disco is that it's one of the first times since jazz that a music genre created by like people of color went mainstream and still remains sung by people of color So it wasn't taken over, like rock and roll was kind of taken over by Elvis Presley and the Beatles, and then it became more popular, whereas disco music continued to be sung and performed by people of color, which is really amazing. And then, of course, also like disco music was really fundamental to like all of the technology that we have today, like mixers, loudspeakers, lighting, the synthesizer, So like a lot of those things that are so popular in like a club and modern dance culture wouldn't exist without disco music.
0: Well, and even just like how modern music is produced and Mm -hmm. created, like we like it relies on that technology. So that's so cool. Exactly.
1: Yeah. And then this is where it gets really crazy. So in the summer of 1979, disco is at the height of its craze. Like everyone's obsessed with it. Donna Summer is called the Queen of Disco, and she's everywhere on the radio. You have Gloria Gaynor, Earth, Wind, and Fire, The Village People. Like, everyone is listening to disco. Mm. What happened is that there was this guy, he was a radio DJ, Steve Dahl, and he got fired from his job at WDAI Chicago, in 1978 because the station decided to switch from rock and roll to disco and they cut his morning show. He was only 24 years old and instead of getting mad at the radio station itself or his bosses or anyone else that was actually responsible, he turned all of his anger at disco. Okay. The genre itself. He actually was interviewed on The Tomorrow Show. This what it was called, which is funny, because now we have the Today Show. I don't know if that was also a like a connection. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But he got interviewed by Tom Snyder, and he said, it's not so much the music that I dislike, it's actually the culture, which is very problematic. Yeah, I was going to say, ooh, okay. Yeah, so then what happened is he actually ended up getting rehired by this other radio station called The Loop, which was a rival to WDAI. And he started leading this really stupid thing that caught on he called it the anti-disco crusade oh my gosh and basically on his morning show he would destroy disco records on air and that was his whole thing so he would drag the needle across the record and blow it up or he would mock disco constantly on air he released some songs that were parodies of popular disco songs They said, (laughs) I love this, the article I read, it said, for the sake of your ears, don't look them up. (laughs) (laughs) And he started getting invited on these talk shows, like I said, he was on The Tomorrow Show, talking about, like, why he hated disco music. And then it got worse. Steve Dahl's radio station caught the attention of Mike Veek, and Mike Veek's father, Bill Veek, owned the Chicago White Sox. And they would do all these crazy Mm. promotions to, like, get people to come to the games, So they would just, like, do all these insane sales, like, almost like the, you know, like, bring a can of food and your minutes is free or something like that, you know? But whereas that's, like, nice that he, this is awful. They invited Dahl, their radio host, to host a disco demolition night on July 12th. During a doubleheader game to promote ticket sales. So, anyone who brought a disco record to be blown up by Doll would then only have to pay 98 cents. This guy got his ego bruised and made it his whole personality. Exactly. And then, of course, because no one can ever destroy things without going absolutely nuts, it got really, really bad. (laughs) What? Yeah, it got really bad. Here, let me find it. Oh yeah, he also said like a bunch of other things. This is Steve Dahl. He would like make jokes about how lame disco was, and his wife even commented that his actions uh, for like hating disco were because he wanted to be accepted and validated. He felt lost in a new culture of women's liberation, happens. black rights, sexual liberation and androgyny and materialism. And I just think it's funny that like this culture that was so inclusive made him feel so threatened. (laughs) But anyway, back to the disco demolition night. So he dressed up in a military helmet and army outfit and then went down to the field. And it was supposed to be just this funny joke between him and all of his friends, right? But what happened is that... He began to fire up the crowd on a microphone and said, these disco records that you brought tonight, we've got them in a giant box, and we're going to blow them up real good. And so they got everyone to chant, disco sucks, and then blew up a bunch of like disco discs, leaving a crater in the middle of the field. One thing that was really sad is there was actually a black usher who was there. His name was Vince Lawrence, and he was an aspiring musician. And something that he noted is that he was actually hoping he could grab a few of the records and take them home with him because they were like people he listened to and he wanted to keep them and they were trying to destroy them. And the White Sox were actually only expecting like 5,000 people to turn up and there was 50,000 people there. That is insane. So it was a lot bigger too than they expected. And one thing that he was really uncomfortable with is the fact that a bunch of the records that people brought weren't even disco. They were just music by black people. So he said Tyrone Davis, Curtis Mayfield, Otis Clay, they weren't disco artists. And yet people brought their records to be blown up, like basically claiming that like, oh, disco, like we're not mad at disco, we're just racist.
0: See, now it all makes sense. I'm like, this is like the most bizarre thing, hating a music <laughs> genre this much.
1: Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. The White Sox started to warm up for the second game, but then hordes of people rushed the field, started stealing bases, lighting down foul poles, attempting to break into clubhouses, and lighting <laughs> fires. One of the White Sox players, Steve Trout, remembers almost being hit by a Village People record. That came careening from the stands, lodging into the grass near his right foot, which you have to remember, like records are weapons. Yeah, they're, they're actually pretty sharp. I was just gonna say, <laughs> and pretty heavy. So that's not something I would want, like flying towards my face. And that no. continued to be a thing. People were using records as frisbees and they were flying around the stands. A player, Ed Farmer, got in a fistfight in the parking lot. Vince Lawrence recalls a stranger running up to him, breaking a disco record in his face and yelling, Disco disco sucks, you see that? As if he were a physical representation of disco. Unsurprisingly, (laughs) the chaos descended into a full-blown riot, ending with 39 people arrested, once raging bonfire that completely burnt up the grass. Andy Lacing, who is actually one of the white witnesses that they interviewed, he said that he didn't feel safe, even though he wasn't like even being targeted directly, but it was just absolute chaos, and the White Sox were forced to forfeit the game because it was their crowd, their home field that created this, and their like halftime show promotion that they did that basically destroyed the any chance of it happening again.
0: That is crazy. Like, how am I?
1: <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> Isn't that insane? Yes. What makes me disgusted is that 40 years later during Pride Month, Steve Dahl threw the first pitch. So that same radio host guy that caused all this trouble, he came back and threw the first pitch at a White Sox game. And they gave a bunch of Disco Demolition Night t-shirts away as like commemorative merch. Wow. So That's disgusting for multiple reasons. (laughs) But... (laughs) I also hate that they did it during Pride Month because disco is such a celebration of gay culture. And like, anyway, oh just gosh. really disgusting. But of course, like, why would that result in disco ending? Basically, everyone was too afraid to be a fan of disco after this because they saw what happened. I mean, I, I, fair. <laughs> like, that's
0: insane. Like, people responding that way.
1: Yes, and even when people got mad, like, Dahl and all of his defenders continued to lab- label the riot and everything that came from it as harmless, and that they were just defending the genre of rock and roll oh. and its listeners who felt they didn't belong in the world of disco. Oh, gag me. <laughs> yeah so it was awful (laughs) nile rogers of the legendary funk group chic later said that the event felt like a nazi book burning i was he said say like yeah it's it's honestly i'm amazed like and not in a good way like i'm shocked that something like this took place like yeah and we don't talk about it because it's so disgusting Nile Rogers said, like, this is America, the home of jazz and rock, and people were now even afraid to say the word disco. He remembers thinking, we're not even a disco group, but they just, they like I said, they weren't even blowing up a bunch of disco records, per se. They were
0: just blacking up, growing, excuse me, they were blowing up things done by black
1: musicians. Yeah, anything by black and queer artists was being burnt up, and so he just said it was terrifying. Newspapers and magazines following the event started talking about how disco culture was on the decline, (laughs) even though it never actually was. Like Everyone was just too scared to call it disco. And those all-disco radio stations reverted back to playing rock and roll. But, however, (laughs) what happened with disco is that it actually just got a new name, (laughs) and that's actually what Martha Wash released a lot of her work under the name of dance music and that's literally what it was it was mm, okay. dance music house music or techno and it was those same artists um, that were able to come in and kind of take over Chicago Detroit and other areas around there and have it become a popular genre once again so Just called it a different name so people wouldn't start yeah. rioting
0: in the streets again. <laughs> yes. So
1: disco never actually died, which kind of made me happy because <laughs> that was a disgusting event. <laughs> I yes. hate that they did that. And I'm glad that disco was kind of able to continue regardless. But I'm still upset that they did that because I don't know, like disco basically would have been our pop music, I think, today. And instead they like, yeah, it's just really sad. But anyway, there's a really good blog post about it called Black Girl Culture, is the blog, and I'll link the blog post in the show notes. So if you want to read more about the day Disco died, you can.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So dramatic, but like so accurate. Isn't that insane? (sighs) Yeah, it really is. Yeah, that's
1: why I had to keep it in, because I was like, this literally reminds me of, like, book burnings, or, like, like we talked about Footloose before, like, a very severe
0: Footloose. (laughs) A very racist. That was, like,
1: serious? Yes. Like, (laughs) that's just absolutely disgusting and I can't believe that the White Sox were like yeah come burn records in the middle of our field during halftime yeah and then to celebrate it 40 years later when like they had to fork. I don't it just sounds really gross anyway (laughs) anyway so that's disco music I'm sure there's more but it was like so enlightening and I'm like man I want to like research a lot more about disco Mm because I think it's so interesting but now we get to talk about Martha Elaine Wash, Yay. who is an incredible artist that I'm really excited to talk about with a legendary voice. She was born on December 28th in 1953, and she is a singer, a songwriter, an actress, and a producer. Uh, a little bit of everything. That's <laughs> crazy. But her musical career actually began at like age two or three in her parents' church choir, which is so young and really cool. I was going to say, okay. (laughs) And she was born in San Francisco, so that's where she grew up. She was a daughter of devout Christians, and so she would absorb and imitate what she called the gospel greats, like Mahalia Jackson and Clara Ward, and they would listen to these gospel artists while they cleaned the house, her and her mom. And then at the same time, she said she'd sneak in records of the Supremes, the Temptations, and Rare Earth because I wasn't allowed to listen to secular music. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) so she's sneaking in the Supremes on uh, the down low to listen to. She attended McKinley Elementary and then ended up graduating from San Francisco Polytechnic High School. She sang in the school choir, of course, and continued to sing in public through her church choir. She said it was one of the few refuges from constant bullying over her weight. And then after years of singing gospel music, of course, from like her choir performances at church, she started taking private lessons with an opera teacher and then started developing a vocal style that drew on opera, pop, rock and funk that she like loved. So it was like this blend of everything And you can definitely hear it in her voice. Like she just has the perfect like belting voice that, oh, it's so good. One thing that was really cool is during her time in high school, the school choir teacher like really pushed hard to give them exposure. And so they traveled and performed throughout Europe for two weeks, like literally toured Europe. That's insane. Yes, which is insane. And then they also saved, she saved up enough money and like raised it to record albums with the high school choir kids. So they had released four albums before she graduated, which is also incredible. The teacher was able to do that. I think that's amazing. So then she graduated from high school, ended up joining a gospel group called NOW, or News of the World. And this is where she met the other half of the Weather Girls, Isora Rhodes, And while they were both kind of singing with Now, Wash worked as a secretary for UC Hospital and Rhodes was working as a bartender and a nurse's assistant, as well as a piano and vocal teacher. And then kind of where they got their start as a duo is Wash went for audition to sing with Sylvester, who was a famous vocalist at the time. And he wanted background singers. She said she first saw him when she went to see a Billy Preston concert. Mm. And there was, he was the opening act, Sylvester was. And she, he has like this high falsetto voice. And she remembers watching him and just saying, who is this guy? And she didn't sit down throughout the entire performance. And so when he had an open audition for backup singers, she went. She said the entire audition lasted five minutes There were two skinny white girls that auditioned for him a few minutes before I walked in. I sang a gospel song for him, and he told the other two girls to leave and said, okay, I'd like to hire you. Do you know someone that is larger than you that can sing? (laughs) (laughs) And so she contacted her friend, and they started as the two co-singers as his backup singers. And what was kind of funny about it is that, like so it was during the height of disco right it's like 1974 disco's not dead yet still very popular and even though disco was a really popular place for like social outsiders uh, he was an openly gay cross-dressing frontman and then he had two large women as his background singers and so it like a lot of people considered it like an anomaly or like a weird a novelty act Is what a lot of people considered it. But Wash and Armstead made light about their Rubenesque figures. (laughs) They named their group, like just the two of them, Two Tons of Fun. And they, you know, just really embraced the fact of their size and how people would comment on it. And she comments later, she said, I never really thought about it at the time, but years later having conversations with interviewers, mm-hmm. it made me think there really weren't any women our size on the scene. I was just starting out in the business and was just happy to get a gig. You couldn't miss us. We were large women, okay? Some people called us a novelty act at the time, but the, novel, the only novel thing about us was that we could sing. And they continued to tour with Sylvester for quite a while, while a lot of his songs topped in the charts. Wash started working alongside Sylvester to, like, hone her vocal stylings. They, of course, performed a lot of his background vocals for his recordings that peaked on the Billboard charts and even became, like, a number one single on the charts. It was a song called Dance Disco Heat, which is the lead single. And then the duo together, post-Sylvester, continued to release music together, with Fantasy Records, releasing a self-titled album, Two Tons of Fun, with two top five dance singles, Earth Can Be Just Like Heaven, and I Got the Feeling. And then their second album, Back At Ya, was released later that year. Back At Ya, all one word, <laughs> which I love. And the single, I Depend On You, that peaked at number 72 on the charts. And then, of course, this leads in to their most popular, most well-known song, It's Rain and Men. Hallelujah! Okay, yes. (laughs) (laughs) A classic. Which we all know that one, right? My first introduction to it was on the um, Dance Dance Revolution, I think. I was just gonna say, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And it's, of course, a very, very popular song. However, it was a song that, after it was written, a bunch of people turned down, and so it's often been coined the song that no one wanted no way so here in 1981 there was a songwriter named paul jabara who had written donna summers we talked about her when you're we talking about disco her 1978 disco hit last dance and he called his arranger paul shaffer and he asked him if he'd like to work on this song with him for donna summer that was the plan they were going to give it to donna summer and Paul Jabara was openly gay, and he even said about the song, he said, the gays will love it. He knew that Donna Summer's audience was a gay club audience, and so he was like, let's just give them what they want. So when they pitched the song to Donna Summer, <laughs> and pitched it basically, it was like, it's a song about men falling from the sky. <laughs> I mean, yeah, <laughs> it, it is. It is. <laughs> but Donna Summer was newly religious, And she thought it was blasphemous that it included words like hallelujah and amen and like about the angels rearranging the sky and everything else. Yeah. She was like, that's blasphemy. I don't want to sing it. And so they're like, okay, who else can we give it to? So they turned to their other friend, Diana Diana Ross. And she said, no, thanks. Then they asked Cher. Cher. She declined. They're like, no, <laughs> this then... song is amazing. Trust <laughs> <Yeah>. us. <laughs> and then they turned to Barbara Streisand and she said no as well, which is so crazy. But like this iconic song. However, in 1982, Wash and Armstead, who were, of course, the duo, accepted and even ended up renaming themselves the Weather Girls to kind of match mm. the song and they released the top selling single it's a raining men which brought them into the mainstream pop attention wash That's said when she amazing. was told the song's concept she laughed and said you've got to be kidding me but she remarked later that it's morphed into a song that grandparents parents and kids all sing and dance to and so she's really happy to have been a part of it i mean it's a bizarre song but it's iconic <laughs> yeah and of course like the song was really like he said the gays will love it it was very popular with the gay community and it was really embraced like ymca by the village people it also became a gay anthem and later a mainstream hit and even though it was sung from the perspective of women it was objectifying men in a way that was rarely heard Which I thought was interesting because Mm. I think that's true. Like, there's a lot of songs that objectify women, but I don't think there's very many that objectify men. Yeah, that's true. So this is one of those. Let's objectify men more, everybody.
0: (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Maybe that's not the answer. I don't really
1: want to objectify anyone, but I do think it's interesting. It is interesting because it's true, yeah. Of course, like, that idea wasn't lost on the gay listeners, and so they saw that as, like, a celebration of her culture. Mm -hmm. and they really embraced it the song sold six million copies worldwide of course like the shouts of hallelujah and amen fit right in with the duo's gospel roots the hollywood film and television producers really embraced it as well and it's been featured on tons of tv shows and movies (laughs) i was gonna say like it's like perfect for those like like, because it's so ridiculous that it like it just works (laughs) exactly and Martha Wash even commented, she said, could you imagine Barbara Streisand singing that song? <laughs> like, you can't, like you really can't because it is, it is ridiculous. But that's, yeah, that's kind of what makes amazing. it fun. The music video is even more ridiculous than the song. It was super low budget. It was filmed in an abandoned building. If you want to see something just absolutely poorly made, but like funny, then you can watch the music video. Both of the singers didn't have a pleasant experience with it because during the shoot they even had to, they had to like fall on this mattress and they found out later it was infested with bed bugs. <gasps> Ooh, okay. Yeah. And was just like it was filmed in an abandoned building. Like it was just <laughs> not like oh and so like even though the song was doing really well, the music video was just kind of thrown together. Yeah, I'm surprised they, like, six million copies, like, could we not put together a bigger budget for this song? Okay. It it was ridiculous. So the music video is kind of trash, but the song's great. (laughs) Yes. And when they were talking about the song, like, Paul Schaefer, one of those co-writers, they were discussing what made the song work in an episode on the TV series called Unsung. And he said, it was the craziness of the concept combined with the serious conviction of Martha Wash's delivery. She delivered it straight, Schaefer says, not even with an arched eyebrow. She gets the joke, but the fun comes from how she doesn't try to take the joke and put a second one on top of her delivery. She just takes it to church every time she sings. She's a pure musical spirit. I love that. I love it too. I think right even if you've listened to the show the office ladies so many times they bring up that in Mm. auditions what when ended up winning people the role was when they didn't try to joke about it they just played it straight like you just play it as if that's what it is and it makes it funnier because it's so absurd that like it fits better if you pretend that it's not
0: like if you acknowledge that it's absurd it doesn't work as much
1: Yeah, exactly. So I thought that was really cool. And I think that that's a good note for like comedy, That like sometimes Mm -hmm. it's better if you just play it completely straight. Yeah. (laughs) It was a huge hit for the Weather Girls, obviously. They ended up recording another rain-themed song, I'm Gonna Wash That Man Right Out of My Hair, which I feel like I've heard. Oh, that's funny. That's from a musical. It's from South Pacific. So
0: I'm assuming they were just trying to make a joke of the fact that they're they're just doing rain themes,
1: so <laughs> <laughs> yeah funny so <laughs> they actually ended up receiving a grammy award nomination for best r&b performance by a duo which is weird because it's not r and B. I i think they just put them in that category because they're black to be honest i was gonna say i feel like that still happens where it's like
0: Oh, they're black. Mm. Cool. They make R and B music. When it's like, I mean, mm-hmm. no. not
1: really, but it's literally okay. like a disco dance, right? Like that's what it yes. is. But they put it in the R and B, oh, and it R&B. it didn't end up winning, but it was nominated, so that was cool in 1983. That is cool. And then they both continued for a while with singing together as a duo doing covers and backups on different records. They sang backup for Aretha Franklin's Freeway to Love and ended up even releasing a Weather Girls album like here and there. However, they split in the late 80s with Armstead reviving the group in 1992 with her daughter and them kind of singing until she passed away in 2004. So Martha Wash, however kind of has resurrected it a little bit in 1998 she recorded a follow-up song with the acclaimed drag queen RuPaul oh no way <laughs> <laughs> yeah called it's raining men the sequel I haven't heard that one that's but so funny though I'm just yeah, happy it it's out there <laughs> And also, like, an interesting note, Jerry Hollowell, who was Ginger Spice in the Spice Girls. Oh, yeah. She recorded a cover of It's Raining Men in 2001, and her version was used on the soundtrack to the movie Bridget Jones's Diary. Hmm. And when it was released, the single shot up to number one for two weeks on the Billboard Top Charts. Wow. So that's interesting. Yeah. Song had another life. (laughs) Yeah. So, of course, it's everywhere. I... Doubt that there's very many of you that are listening that haven't heard. (laughs) It's raining again.
0: (laughs) So, like, come on, let's start
1: investing a little bit of pop culture. (laughs) And when I was, you know, researching for this episode, I went and listened to it again, and it's just as wonderful as the first time you heard it. So, and of course, it's super fun to sing along to. So,
0: highly recommend. We're going to take a quick break just to spotlight one of our new favorite women artists. stigma but yeah so like there's tons of books that like you know there's like definitely like the book talk books and like when you go to barnes and noble now you'll see a whole shelf that's just labeled book talk that's for crazy. all the ones that people are recommending or oh, that are man. really popular on tiktok and i've read a couple of them i'm making my way through i think a big one that i just purchased recently is like the invisible life of addie larue or yeah is that what it's called? yeah i've heard of, about a lot, that yes. one a lot Yes, so that's my one that I've recently purchased that I'm very excited to start Another major book talk book I've read is People We Meet on Vacation. Oh, did it's you like it? I, I loved it. Which makes me want to reach more, read more romance novels because the last book I read that fast was the first one in the Montana Marriages series oh, yeah. that you learned to me. <laughs> so I'm like, I think I like romance novels and we've talked a lot about that genre yes go check it out it's one of my favorite episodes we've done i think that's our underrated episode i
1: agree it was very underrated and it was so much fun
0: and also too like i think it's part of this like i was always so scared to like read the books that were not not scared but like i was always so insecure to like read the books that were like for girls but i that's stupid it's cool to like things that girls like and all these book accounts are just like yeah these are the books that women are reading and a lot of women like, and it's okay that I want to read these books too. Just really dismantling my internalized misogyny over here by following book Instagram accounts. Yay! If you're <laughs> so, that's what we're all go about. Check her out. Yes. <laughs> Who knew that it could be that
1: simple? But that's awesome.
0: <laughs> yes, yeah, so again, that's reads by hand.
1: I'm going to do a poet. Ooh. She's really popular. Rupi Carr. Oh, she's written so many books. It's all poetry, and I think she draws the illustrations in her poetry as well. There's like little simple oh, cool. line drawings.
0: Yes, I mean, I've definitely seen this all. Yeah, before. I feel
1: like they went kind of viral for a while. Mm. A lot of people call it like it's kind of like Tumblr esque poetry, but definitely. they were really good. Like, I've read them, um, they were very moving. Um, the one that I read was Milk and Honey oh yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then she also has the sun and her flowers homebody the moon and her stars and then she's even been featured in the poetry one-on-one um book that says from shakespeare to ruby Carr. so well, that's cool. yeah that's a good name to be next to for sure but i love her instagram account because she just shares a lot of her poems and illustrations on there as well as beautiful photos And I also really love her poetry books. I love poetry books. All right, now back to the show. After the duo disbanded, like I said, in 1988, Wash transitioned to house music. And she continued doing like session works, is what she called them. It was with a producer called David Cole, who was a former New York City DJ and then a session musician who had previously been Wash's pianist and musical director in The Weather Girls. His name was David Cole, and he had also worked with Fleetwood Mac and Janet Jackson. Uh, you know, really casual, no names. <laughs> yeah. So they were like the co-founders of this house music production team called C Plus C Music Factory. This is when she started kind of becoming like a featured artist on a bunch of songs. And I labeled this section stealing her voice because... That's what happened. So her friend David would call her up and she'd go and record demos. The assumption was that she was going to record these demos for other artists. For them to actually end up recording. To listen to and then sing. Because, of course, like if you don't, a lot of artists don't write their songs, which is totally fine. I feel like after last week's episode, I need yeah. to like say that. Like, it's totally fine if you don't write your own songs. <laughs> but yes. for the songwriters, they needed like a reference to show the band or the performance group who were going to sing it what it should sound like so that they could hear it. And so Wash would be the one who would go in and record the demo in order for them to hear what the song should sound like. So there was this song called Seduction, and it was a studio pre project that was put together they used wash's vocals as a demo there was also another song called you're my one and only true love and then what happened is the production duo grabbed this trio of very beautiful women who were the face of seduction with wash only getting a backing vocalist credit on her own song
0: but it like literally wasn't them singing it at all
1: no she sang it
0: oh my god! they
1: just were the face and it happened again in 1989 she received a call to work with a trio of italian house music impresarios named groove groove melody okay. who produced for outside singers and she didn't know it at the time but this group had already stolen vocals from other singers and had models lip sync over the top without giving credit they had like done just it with models yeah oh they had gosh. done it with La Holloway's disco song called "Love Sensation, and Holloway actually ended up suing them for illegally stealing her song, and they responded, settled the lawsuit, and then had someone else basically oh. record what Laleta Holloway had done in her song mm-hmm. and then just put it back in the song. so they didn't really fix it. They removed her voice, but it was literally the same thing, Thank- which oh is still my stealing. Gosh. Yeah. Um, Anyway, so Wash didn't know this. She was paid a flat fee to record demos to be presented. And instead of using it as a demo, they just used her vocals. It was practically on every single song in the Black Box's debut album Dreamland. Oh my gosh. Yeah. With hits called Everybody, Everybody, I Don't Know Anybody Else, Fantasy, and Strike It Up. Here's the worst part. Before, she had been credited as a background vocalist, even though she was the primary vocalist. This time, Did she, she wasn't any? credited at all.
0: Oh, my gosh. It's, like, insane that, like, because it's, like, they're going to hear it. Like, yeah. it's not like she's going to be like, oh, there's nothing wrong with this. So, it's, like,
1: just <laughs> the audacity to, like, move forward. Yep. None of the producers in Black Box pop- publicly would say why her name was Quinall. Was used as the face of Black Box in the videos over Walsh, but it's not hard to figure out they went for like a very skinny, a very sexy girl. You know, the cover of the mm. album had her in a cropped jacket and a mini skirt, like crouching down and like staring at the camera. You know, they were really trying They're to play going that up. Sexy vibe. Yep. And there was a note that actually said fans couldn't tell who was singing on the record in the live setting. It was abundantly clear apparently there is a video it got blocked so I think that the video has been taken down but in a video from that time period Quinal can be heard singing I don't know anybody else live as Wash's backing track blares from the PA for the first 80 seconds Quinal struggles to hit her notes caterwauling around the stage before her mic is mercifully cut and she is forced to lip sync Wash's vocals so they oh just shit. had her lip sync in live performances. Uh, which is so horrible. <laughs> also, like, it's,
0: I feel like that's got to be so obvious, but maybe not. I don't know. Yeah.
1: And then back to C++ Music Factory, they actually paid Wash a Flat Free to record background vocals for the <laughs> very, very popular Everybody Dance Now hook. You know what it is. Everybody dance now. Everybody
0: dance now. I mean, yeah, yeah, that's another like, if you haven't heard that song, where
1: have you been? (laughs) That's her voice. That's Martha Wash. She didn't say how much she was paid for, but court papers that were filed around the same time say that the fee was less than $1,000 with no royalties. Well, I was going to say like 100%
0: whatever she was paid was not enough considering how huge that
1: song even still is yes exactly and that's what kind of happened wash said she thought it was gonna be a demo the song that has everybody dance now in it is called gonna make you sweat if you didn't know <laughs> which i didn't actually i did not <laughs> yeah. yeah and in october 1990, it was released and there was even a video released featuring the band's other singer zelma davis lip syncing washes vocals gosh because there is such a difference
0: between you know like I've done session work before too where someone just says hey I wrote the song but I need someone just to sing it for me okay yeah no big deal like mm-hmm. that's fine pay me a hundred bucks or you know however much it is for it but like to oh use God. a demo, to release it, yeah
1: have it be oh like that is just not right no okay. it's not right at all and the worst part is I actually feel really, really bad for the band's singer, Zelma Davis. She's given so many mm-hmm. interviews after about the whole experience and how horrible like it was for her. Um, I mean, yeah. You yeah. Can imagine. <laughs> so this is from an interview with her. She said the record label production company and management told me it was OK to lip sync in the video as long as I sing live in public. I was 19, inexperienced, and extremely gullible. On the video set, Mm. I kept telling members of the crew that it wasn't me singing in this particular song. And as word sped throughout the set that I was revealing this fact, label representatives and our management pulled me aside and asked that I stop speaking about whose uh, whose vocals they were. Despite being the track's primary singer, Wash was merely listed in the album liner notes as one of the six background vocalists. Literally, it's her. Yeah. And they're like, oh, she was a background vocalist. Obviously, by this point, Wash is mad. (laughs) She's fed up. She's angry. Especially because she was convinced that a lot of it was based on her size. She was like, just because I'm a size four doesn't Mm -hmm. mean you can pass off another person as my voice. Like, that's not fair. So in July 1990, she released her first lawsuit against Savella's Cole and Seductions record label A&M a&m records for unauthorized use of her voice two months later she filed another lawsuit against black box and rca records for commercial appropriation claiming that she never received proper proper credit for any of the black box songs when gonna make you sweat came out which of course was like a really big deal because that's the really popular song she was in europe and started getting Mm -hmm. phone calls about it she said people wanted interviews with me but it wasn't for the weather girls it was for me and that's when I started realizing that the song was out and people had questions while the okay but the fact though that everyone else like they could tell like yes she said the general public didn't know whose vocals were on the track but those who were in the industry did and they were like what is happening so it was the people in the industry who knew her voice and they just said that's like that's Martha Martha like what's happening And she remembers going, like, what's going on? Okay, that's me, but why am I there under C&C Music Factory? Mm -hmm. So she was just so confused because she's like, "They first off, they didn't tell me this was coming out with my vocals. Second off, they didn't properly credit me. And third off, like what is happening (laughs) like that's just yeah like I mean in that (laughs) moment when like you're getting phone calls I'm sure it's like what like what I don't know yeah so even though she had like the previous lawsuits against the other instances of this this one kind of became the big one just because of how popular the song was how how big this song she tried to get in touches in touch with Cole's management um looking for answers like why her demo versions ended up going to the final cut and why Davis was assuming like the lead role in the video and like lip syncing her voice they didn't give her any resolution for any of it just continued to deny that her physical appearance had any role in the situation and even told the newspaper the Chicago Tribune that her ongoing seduction lawsuit left them in an awkward position and so they didn't know how to talk to her about it hold on
0: Because this has happened to her before, we decided it would be too awkward, so we just did it again.
1: Like, (laughs) what? (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah. Just like the stupidest thing ever. The lead guy, Savellus, he kept telling Rolling Stone that the weight accusations were ridiculous. We would never do something like that. We were cool with Martha way before and after. When it was time to do the music video, we didn't even know it would be wrong. We didn't do it to fool people in any way. It was simple as we were shooting a video. Zelma sang on 75% of the I album mean, and was a group member. Sounds like a bunch of nonsense to me. Yes, of course. Me, and then back to another segment from last week, briefly, of stupid men saying stupid things in interviews. <laughs> um, a member... <laughs> they always do so well at them. Yeah, right? Um, a music Factory member Freedom Williams said, I don't mean to be rude, harsh, callous, maligning, or vilifying... But I'd rather look at Zelma on stage. <laughs> I don't mean to be the worst, but I'm about to be the worst. Davis, of course, just claimed that when she was when she auditioned to be the lead female singer, she was never told that there were any other female members of the group and was completely okay. not aware of any of this really happening. Like why I said, I continue to feel really bad for her. Wash does admit that she was invited to join the production company and the music group, but declined because she wanted to work on like R&B music and everything like on her own instead
0: but like her declining to join the production group doesn't mean that they have authorization (laughs) to use her voice without her exactly
1: but yeah they just kept saying like oh she had every like we were gonna let her join we were gonna let her be a part of it and she was like I didn't want to it doesn't mean that you can use my My like my voice yeah so Wash sued them of course for five hundred thousand dollars for fraud, deceptive packaging, and commercial appropriation, um, saying it was false advertising and the public needed to know about that, which is true. Like, they were using a voice that didn't belong to them with a person whose voice it wasn't what, like, it wasn't. Consent and, like, wasn't getting proper. Because, like, it's one thing if,
0: like, you know, they're like, hey, you don't have to be a part of the group, but can we use your voice? You'll be credited. You'll get a cut of the royalties. But, like you know what i mean like that is
1: whole totally different than what has actually exactly happened so just disgusting civillas maintains to this day that the lawsuit wasn't necessary and there was no intentional deception on his part arguing instead that the media media perpetuated the notion that cnc had tried to oh pull God. a fast one on the music buying
0: like public. even still after that to be like no we didn't do anything wrong it's like
1: no you you Just like, just take the loss. Like, you absolutely did. Wash ended up settling for an undisclosed amount that was just labeled as substantial with quite a few of the different record labels and companies. She ended up settling with Sony as well, who did the music video. And they even had this unprecedented request made to MTVs. So this is groundbreaking where they added a disclaimer at the beginning of the going to make you sweat video, crediting wash for the vocals and Davis for the visualization Wow, is what they said. Yeah. After winning now, this part is sad too, but like the video ended up winning best dance video at the 1991 MTV video music awards and members of CNC music factory thanked everyone, but wash. <laughs> with Davis curiously thanking MTV for showing that I can sing and I am talented even though she wasn't singing. Davis later said that she didn't even know about the visualized addendum when she saw the video on TV and she was just upset that no one had informed her that the disclaimer had been added especially because she didn't want to be like she didn't want to lip sync in the first place. Yeah. So she was kind of pushed into it by her management so the whole thing was just embarrassing for her.
0: I mean fair. It should be more embarrassing for the men who made that
1: decision, but whatever. Yeah, She said the manager called her a brat and a lot of people started portraying her as the villain because they, you know, like she was the face Mm, of the music video. She said for 20 years, I blamed myself. I experienced severe depression. No record label would touch me. I was branded a model and a fraud. My career was over. I was blacklisted, chewed up and spit out. I felt horrible about myself for the part I played. As a child, I was a fan of Martha Wash and I still am. I apologized to her several years after the scandal, pl- Scandal placed blame on myself and claimed responsibility for my role. Martha's vocals were used as the lead and I believe she had the right to sue for proper compensation. I mean, yeah,
0: that sucks, especially when it's like, you know, like she's left to almost like get the worst of it all when it's like, yeah, she was the singer, but it sounds like this wasn't her choice at no. all. So.
1: Like she said she was 19, she was young, and literally everyone, the record label, everybody told her, no, it's fine, you do it. Do it this way. Yeah. Like, I don't know if there's many of us that would be able to stand up and say, no, that's wrong, you know?
0: Well, and especially when they were like, oh, it's just for the video, but like, you'll sing it live in this. So it's kind of like, oh, okay, maybe this is just a placeholder for while we're filming the video right now. And yeah. Like, she was being honest. She was telling everyone like, oh yeah, these aren't my vocals.
1: So exactly. it's like, and then the record
0: label was like, mm, no, don't don't let them know. So it's like, oh, so like they knew they were doing something wrong. And now she's just left to like, you know, like I said, take the worst of it. Yeah.
1: And I really do feel bad for her because unlike the other instance where the lady that they had kind of lip syncing couldn't even sing. Like Mm -hmm. maybe her vocals wouldn't have been as good as Martha Wash's because like, you know, there was a lot more training and stuff there. There's a reason they used her demo, but she actually could sing. And she never said that she couldn't sing it. Like, you know, it just maybe wasn't Mm -hmm. what exactly what they were going for with the sound. But like she was a musician and she did sing on the rest of the songs in the record. Yeah,
0: that's true. It's honestly insane to me that this didn't like ruin the success of the song like I feel like that just shows how good of a song it is like even in this scandal like it won awards
1: it did this well and it's still this well yeah exactly it's it's really crazy one of the greatest things that came out of this whole mess (laughs) is that it sparked legislation in the early 1990s for vocal credits and on cds and music videos and now they're mandatory which is really cool okay so in november 1990 have you heard of millie vanilli yeah yeah so the two members of millie vanilli fab morvin and rob Pilatus, yeah. admitted that they didn't sing any of the songs by millie vanilli wow so they were just like I, I didn't have time to look into that one but like I'm guessing they were just kind of like a lip sync front as well for yeah. like someone else's vocals, which is crazy. And then obviously with the Black Box albums and what happened with Martha Wash, a bunch of people who had bought the album actually filed lawsuits wow. <laughs> against the record labels saying that it was class action consumer fraud. Dang. And yeah, and of course like it it worked (laughs) because it is technically to say that someone's saying something if they didn't and to put someone at the front of something, if they weren't actually the one who did it, you know, like that is false advertising. Uh And so as a result of the lawsuits, record labels were forced to assign proper vocal credit for all of the albums and music videos, making Martha Wash an unwitting industry pioneer. And of course this lawsuit was filed under the truth in advertising laws which is very cool. There's a whole category for truth in advertising. Mm -hmm. And bills were introduced into New Jersey and New York to protect concert promoters and pre-recorded material from being used on stage. So they had to like disclose if someone was lip syncing on stage and in all other instances like that. And it also,
0: I feel like, there's still instances though of like people who do lip sync so I'm like curious is like how that's
1: yeah I don't know maybe it's different out. if it's like they sang it and so that it's allowed yeah. maybe that's the difference like they have to prove that they were the one who actually did the vocals K- who like yeah, and then okay. it's okay but then. like yeah you have to they have to disclose whether pre-recorded material is being used on stage or not. So
0: I don't know where they disclose that. Like (laughs) I was going to say, or maybe they just like make it really tiny print so that like no (laughs) one's actually looking for it. But like if anyone brings it up, it's like,
1: Oh, well we said it. it So yeah. And then eventually Um, it led to, like I said, the federal legislation. So they had to put vocal credit on all albums and music videos, which is really great something that's funny is that RuPaul even recalled hearing the records without the images. And he went, wow, that's Martha. She sounds great. And then the images came out and he was like, what, what? <laughs> and then ended up saying, well, of course this is proof, proof of the superficiality and hypocrisy in our culture. The people that buy music are looking for themselves and the images that they buy. And mm. it's unfortunate that the voice and talent is just a small part of the equation. So I thought that was a really good, Way to put it. Yeah. Surprisingly, even after all these lawsuits, Wash teamed up with CNC Music Factory for a follow up song called Anything Goes and even appeared in the video for the album's biggest hit, Do You Want to Get Funky? she said she ended up making peace with cole so one of the members (laughs) before his death in 1995 and i love this quote from her she said you can't live in the past and mistakes were possibly made on both sides said wash i even went on the road with them this time some people hold grudges for decades and i don't understand that you've just got to keep it moving Of course, to this day, she's known as the most famous unknown singer of the 90s. I mean, yeah. (laughs) And in December 2016, Billboard magazine ranked her as the 58th most successful dance artist of all time. Wow. A lot of people also, once a lot of this stuff came out, they gave her the nickname the Queen of Clubland, the Midas of dance music, because all eight songs featuring her vocals hit number one on the Billboard dance chart with wow. Gotta Make You Sweat trumping both dance and R&B charts before coming a multi-platinum hit and topping the Hot 100. That's insane. Yeah. So it's like everything that her vocals were on just like soared during that time period, which is I crazy. Mean,
0: they're just so iconic though. Like like when I think of disco and like think of that genre, like I just, I think of her voice. Like I think mm-hmm. of that Everybody Dance Now and like just that iconic voice.
1: Yep. There's actually a clip in the TikTok I watched of, like, a television host saying, like, oh, you want to, like, prove it was you? And she sings, just, like, sitting down. Does the everybody dance now? Oh. And it is so perfect because it's so high-pitched. It's, like, a really hard. I was going to say, like, that's not, like, a casual vocal line. No. Like, that's <laughs> impressive. <laughs> yeah. So it's really cool. Obviously, she went on to have an incredible career. I'm not going to list every single song that she was featured on or released, because we would be here all night long. Like, she did so much. She released a self-titled solo album, Martha Wash, in February of 1993. It did really well. The lead single ended up becoming her fifth number one dance single as a solo artist which is a really big deal as well. And then a bunch of the other singles from that album also continued to chart. She went on to release a ton of songs, either as the lead vocal, collaborator, you know, featured vocalist, like a ton of different things just over and mm-hmm. over again. She performed in a lot of places. She performed at the opening ceremony of the Out Games, which I didn't know what it was, but apparently it's like, Kind of like the Olympic Games, but for people who are publicly out in the LGBTQ community. And so she performed that in Montreal in July of 2006. She also is well known for performing at human rights campaigns events and even premiered on GCN's I've Got a Secret for an All Gay panel singing It's Raining Men, which is great she did a single called keep your body working ended up on number one on the billboards hot dance club play for the week apparently there was a podcast in 2007 which i don't even know podcast had started that early but it was called gay Pimpin" with johnny mcgovern and he dedicated an entire episode to wash and she obliged him with an extended telephone interview so i'm sure you could probably find that somewhere if you wanted to hear more from her in march 2008 she was at the annual big gay day in brisbane That's australia so cool. and performed there as well as the chicago pride parade in june of the same year and performed at the opening ceremony of the nag AAA gay softball world series on october 1st of 2012 she was on the late show at david letterman celebrating the 30th anniversary of the release of its reigning men and in March 2013, she was a special guest for New York City Gay Men's Chorus during their spring production. She also was in a documentary film, 20 Feet from Stardom, another thing to look up. And then, then she released her second solo album, Something Good, that also continued to receive positive feedback and chart. In 2015, this is kind of something different, her and two other female vocalists, created a group called the First Ladies of Disco, which I love. I love that. Yeah, the other two were Evelyn Champagne King and Linda Clifford, and they released a debut single, Show Some Love, in March 2015, which peaked at number six, and they did a ton of performances together, you know, under the name of the first ladies of disco which was actually inspired by a book and i found the book it's on amazon it's called the first ladies of disco and the book had 32 original interviews from women that started their career during the disco era and so they talked to a bunch of them and of course these were three of the main interviews throughout the book that ended up teaming together to kind of share their story yeah. But the book's also out there if you want to read that about Disco. I think it's only $16 for like the Kindle version.
0: Oh, cool. which is
1: great. And they talk about how they view their music careers, the connection to gay audiences and places in dance music history, which is very cool. That is cool. And in March 2008, Wash began a YouTube web series called 10 Minutes with Martha Wash. The videos are still there, so you can still go watch them. I didn't have time, but they're all there. And in 2004, she actually launched her own independent recording label called Purple Roses Records. And it was intended to be a platform for emerging talent and for artists who may be overlooked by major record labels. And that's where a lot of her songs that followed were released, as well as the First Ladies of Disco released a lot of their songs on there as well. She also released a single that was featured on the musical film, Holy Broken, and she played the role of a woman named Rose in the film with her acting debut and then in september 2018 she joined the cast of waste watchers the musical which is great and then in march 2019 the first ladies of disco released a second album or wait a second single don't stop me now and then she released more singles and a third album by herself in 2019 yes Wow, and this was the shortlist. I know that was a lot, but I didn't go into all of the songs no. and how they charted. I tried to keep it to the major performances and moments, and that was still I'm just really like, long. So like, 2019 is so recent. Yeah, she's still alive. I yeah, but like,
0: to still be making music <laughs> yeah. like that. Like that's
1: just amazing. Yeah, but she's nowadays. She is busy with charity work. She of course, because she's just a wonderful person. She's the spokesperson for Q S A C Inc that provides comprehensive services to individuals with autism, which is really wonderful. And she also works for a You Can Play project that's a nonprofit dedicated to ensuring safety, respect, and equality for all athletes without regard to sexual orientation, which is wonderful. And then she also works for Mm -hmm. the Huntington Arts Council and uh, so much more. She's obviously was been heavily involved in the LGBTQ rights and community since the very beginning. She's viewed as a gay icon, which is incredible. I love when people reach that level. (laughs) It's like a whole other different kind of reward. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And she actually wrote an open letter to the LGBTQ community acknowledging the support that she had received and stating it means the world to me when fans tell me they followed me through the sylvester years came out to my music or someone decided not to take their life these are the people i sing for so to all you beautiful people out there i say stand strong don't give in and carry on which is wonderful She's also been an activist against HIV and AIDS because her music mentor and friend Sylvester, who she started out with, he died because of AIDS. And on World's AIDS Day in December 2012, she was awarded a Lifetime Achievement Award in San Francisco from the AIDS Emergency Fund for her advocacy and fundraising in order to help against the disease. There's more, obviously. On September 14, 2014, there was a musical that debuted called Mighty Real, A Fabulous Sylvester Musical, and it's about Sylvester and his life. And so Wash was a character who was portrayed in the production by Jacqueline B. Arnold. And the city of Washington, D.C. has declared Martha Wash Day in the city of San Francisco. They also declared Martha Wash Day in their city and in miami miami florida wash was presented with a key to the city
0: wow that's yeah so cool.
1: she's also inspired a ton of numerous artists notably RuPaul, paul the drag performer he continues to talk about how much she inspired him saying that she merged a gospel voice into pop and dance music seamlessly her voice speaks to both the church and pop ear and was built to cut through the base of dance music. The timbre of her voice is so distinct and beautiful. A lot of gospel-based singers have come and gone and dance music, but she's the one. Talked about a lot of her songs that just like helped him through different parts of his life, even his mother passing, which is incredible. All together, as of only 2014, Wash's voice has collectively accumulated a total of 15 number one dance singles <laughs> placing her as one of the top singers and the most number one hits on the U.S. Dance Club song charts. Wow. Definitely giving her that title once again of mm-hmm. the queen of clubland. She's also been referred to as the voice like just the voice because of That's how so iconic <laughs> and just like I don't know, she's everywhere like the she's the voice behind it's raining men sweat or everybody dance now strike it up everybody Mm -hmm. everybody carry on and it's my time I'm going to end with this quote from this article. It said Martha's voice has dominated the airwaves, and her charisma and spirit have embraced millions of people around the world. She is responsible for some of the top selling, most recognizable pop hits of the 80s and 90s. It's Raining Men, the cult pop classic is heard everywhere the radio movies, commercials, TV. Sweat Everybody Dance Now was the highlight of CNC Music Factory's career and sold five and a half million copies worldwide black Box's dreamland featured four number one billboard dance singles and three top 40 hits including strike it up a single that continues to receive massive airplay and is heard at every nfl and nba game everywhere all of the above have achieved major success and all have one common denominator martha wash she's the heart and soul of dance pop music wow
0: that's that's really cool isn't
1: that cool Mm-hmm. she's just incredible hopefully that end wasn't too much rambling for everybody but like she just no. accomplished like so much i feel like it's impossible to fit into everything
0: yeah <laughs> well i was gonna say like i really i'm this is like my own fault i feel that i really didn't know her name and like i always knew those songs were iconic mm-hmm. and i gave credit to those songs obviously but it's just like it's so cool like like you said like she's the common denominator for all of those amazing songs that are like iconic even still when they came out 30 40 years ago exactly
1: it's like the fact that pretty much everyone i know can still sing every line of it's raining men And everyone knows the like, the fact that the song, Gonna Make You Sweat, isn't even called that. And everyone just knows it by the everybody Everybody dance dance now. now. Yeah, literally no idea. (laughs) That's her voice. Like, she was so incredible that like, the song title didn't even matter. Like, her line was the part that did it. Like, it's just crazy. So, like I said, studying for this episode was a roller coaster from like her legal battles over her voice being stolen, the background Mm -hmm. of disco music and the day disco died to like literally everything else she's been a part of. It just, it's insane. And I wasn't able to find a lot about like what she's up to now. I'm assuming it's just a lot more of that charity work that she's Mm -hmm. doing and everything, but yeah, just really cool that she's made such an impact on the music world yeah that it just it's a legacy that will continue and her like her name is definitely worthy of just being pushed out as much as possible so that more people can hear like how many things she was a part of what an icon yeah seriously so that's martha wash thanks uh- everyone for listening <laughs>
0: well yeah i hope you guys enjoyed learning about Mar- martha wash mm-hmm. not marcia i know i absolutely did and if you like someone who doesn't know about her should know about her send them our episode so that they can listen and thanks for being here and if you are a fan of the podcast maybe rate it
1: review it send
0: us some love
1: also I was going to mention I didn't like plan this but it was just wonderful that this is coming out in February which is actually Black History Month oh well there we go so if you know this is a great time to celebrate Martha Wash and her career, especially because she was such a major part of that, as well as study disco, because disco yeah. was such a major part of, you know, black culture. And it's also a great time to go check out a bunch of other other episodes about yes. wonderful, incredible artists who are people of color. We have a ton. We have quite a few. I know. I'm trying to even think of yeah, them. Yeah, I know our first was like Augusta Savage. And then we also mm-hmm. have... earth the kit Kit. here josephine baker josephine baker is a major one we also have misty copeland lil hardin armstrong yeah lil hardin that one was such a good one gail anderson yeah nora holt did we already say her no we didn't Nora Nora Holt. holt very unknown one so you could be really cool and know that her yeah definitely so yeah there's a few for you to check out but this is a great one to share and all of those if you want to learn more about or have people in your life that want to learn more about black history within the arts specifically yes. arts and music we so, will see you all next week we'll be back yes, with another, episode. and it's a topic episode which are always fun so we'll see you next week